0: I don't want to talk about the election at all.
1: Oh, no. No way.
0: So when do we like clap at the same
2: time to start this thing? Yeah. Are we starting? Is this good? Are we, are we live? It's all part of the episode? <clears throat> I should, as a disclaimer, my internet could go out at any point. So <laughs> it's, it hasn't given me any trouble all day. I've been using it all day. But yeah. as soon as I'm in the middle of a podcast, I imagine it'll stop working. Yeah. I will, uh, I will carry the conversation in your absence.
0: Or you could just wait for me. and We could get back nah. online and start over. Yeah. I'll just try to say Nate things
1: in your absence. You're listening to Well Made. I'm your host, Stefan Ango, co founder of Lumi. What's well made this week? T shirts. We're talking to Jay Finelli and Nathan Peretic, the co founders of Cotton Bureau. Jay and Nate are some of the most thoughtful business people that I know, and they've built an incredible community of designers and creative people who use Cotton Bureau to make t shirts for their fans and their communities. I love their honesty, their humility and the creative way they approach everything they do. This is an episode that gets real and realer over time as we go deep into how they approached building their own business, uh, fundraising, creating their own t-shirts from scratch, and how it all ties to their home in Pittsburgh. Enjoy. Jay, Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: I love having friends on because it's just the easiest conversations for me. And you guys have been, you know, an inspiration for me for a long time. Uh, no, it's a, stop. No, it's for real. You guys have been doing awesome stuff uh, in the design world for a long time. I guess for the people who don't know about Cotton Bureau, do you guys want to share a quick uh, perspective on, on what you guys do and, and maybe a little bit of background on how it came about? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll I'll take this one. Cotton Bureau, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, is an online marketplace
0: for primarily t-shirts and apparel from the creative community, which we define as graphic designers, illustrators, podcasters, content creators, app developers, game developers, things like that. It grew out of a t-shirt brand that we used to run called United Pixel Workers, which itself was a t-shirt brand for web designers and developers, which itself was a side project of our web design shop called Full Stop Interactive, which Nate and I co-founded in 2009 in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we've been at this since mid-2013 is when Cotton Bureau launched. Later that year, we shut down our web design shop to try to go after this full time. Uh, About a year later, we shut down... United Pixel Workers to go after this really full time, and since the beginning of 2015, I guess this has been our full time show. So now we are eight people strong, and uh,
1: we sell t-shirts on the internet. I guess is the the quickest way to say that. Do you do you ever use the term crowdsourcing at all, or is that like not a, a cool word anymore? We do. We do. do we? we do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, th- I
0: think so when we've pitched people in the past we have used it i think i actually just removed it from like my stock pitch like within the last week and a half cuz it's a little buzzwordy and i think we can explain what we do without using the word crowdsource
2: yeah i think if you'd asked that question 3 years ago we could have said oh it's kickstarter for t-shirts but the reality is that kickstarter is hard and it takes a long time to deliver and a t-shirt is You know, we can turn it around in a couple of weeks and it doesn't require hundreds of people to support a vision for a t shirt. You know, so crowdsourcing may be a little extravagant for what we do, (laughs) pre
1: orders. But the magic of that process in what you make is that. Whenever you make T-shirts, I mean, this is a problem that some people have run into uh, and some people have run into it many times, which is, you know, you have to get everybody's sizes and and styles and all that stuff down. And oftentimes you end up making way too many of uh, the extra, extra large or something like that. So this kind of solves that problem for people.
0: Yeah, If you're making t-shirts, most people start off just buying inventory and trying to sell through that inventory. And we did it the same way too, back in 2010 when we launched our first t-shirt brand. And we learned pretty quickly that that's a way to end up with a bunch of extra crap sitting around your house. So um, we launched a pre-order model. You know, we collect all the information up front. You know, we charge everybody at once. We print all the t-shirts we
1: need. We ship them out. There's no, you know, there's no underages. There's no overages. So two things that come to mind every time I think about Cotton Bureau are one, like how you guys have been able to curate such an amazing designer community whether it's curate or attract I'm not I'm not sure I want to ask you about that that that's always you know the synonymous platform for making t-shirts for anyone that I know in the world of design and then the second piece that I always admire about you guys is just running a a good clean business you know being humble being honest creating trust with your community I think is is a really amazing thing that you are able to do. And so I, I'm just kind of curious to talk about both of those things. With the design side, how did you guys do it? What allowed you to become this like trusted place for designers to come? Well, this is a little bit of a evasive answer, but we had a
0: previous brand that was trusted by designers. United Pixel Workers was a phenomenon. It was something that grew into something that we really never foresaw it growing into. And that was a t-shirt line, basically. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, we had a couple other products, but that's by and large what it was. We were a web design studio and we knew other web designers on Twitter. We knew other web design studios and pixel workers, I think, spoke to that community. And we kind of used it as a platform to reach a little bit outside the web design community into the graphic design and illustration community and kind of turn it into something for all those people. I think authenticity is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but I think it helped that we were working designers. We were, you know, studio owners making something for other people who were just like us. And by the time we launched Cotton Bureau, that audience was pretty big. So Cotton Bureau didn't have to start from zero. It kind of started from where Pixel Workers was and kind of took off from there.
1: I should mention that was Jay's voice for, for the record.
0: Yeah, that's that's me. That's me. Nate, you got anything to say here?
2: Yeah, sure. I am not a designer. I'll say that. Um, and I think Jay, if he was speaking about himself, which he chose not to do, would have to say his his eye for design is is very good. You know, it's always been a pleasure to see him work with other designers and get products. You know, design, get websites designed and things. So I think his taste has played a big role in. United Pixel Workers and Cotton Bureau and how we've gone forward. You know, we've said in the past we don't need any more bad T-shirts in the world. Um, and I think Jay's ability to empathize with other designers and the things that appeal to them has, has, like I said, played a large role in, in what Cotton Bureau has become.
1: So where do you fit in, Nate, in the equation, in, in the duo? Uh, I don't know. It just maybe pisses me funny. off a lot. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I guess more on the second question that you were talking about earlier as far as the business things, you know, I've been trying to figure that stuff out since working with Jay at a previous place that we both thought could do better. You know, so we had a lot of conversations at that time and for the past seven years about how would we structure our company? How would we talk about our company? What were our goals for our company? You know, how would the... People who work with us, you know, feel about working with us. Um, since I'm not a designer, I guess by default I have to, you know, answer the other side of the question. It's definitely not all one person or the other. Maybe a lot less me on design and uh, a little bit less Jay on the uh, other side.
1: And are
2: you guys both from Pennsylvania? I am from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, southwestern Pennsylvania. Jay has been here for a while. How long? Like four years, three. <laughs> <laughs> I've. Uh, I think, well, I've been in
0: Pennsylvania for, I don't know, 25 years, something like that. But I grew up all over the Northeast. I moved to Pittsburgh to go to college in the late nineties and, uh, basically been here ever since.
1: Yeah. I wonder if that comes into the picture when it comes to having those values, uh, around your business those strong, simple, hardworking values. It seems very Pittsburgh to me. I guess I think I mean
0: Pittsburgh is a bit of a cliche at this point. You know, when you think of Pittsburgh, yeah, you think of steel mills and the Rust Belt and you know, honest, salt of the earth, hardworking people. And you know, to to a large degree, that's true. I don't know how much it describes me and Nate. I don't know. I mean, I think I think being geographically removed from the rest of the tech community or the design community, places like you know, San Francisco, Brooklyn, even Austin, I guess that's given us. A perspective that maybe being inside those places, you know, get maybe more of an independent spirit. I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's tough to say from, you know, from kind of, kind of sitting where we are, but I don't know. Nate, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's a little bit reductive, I think, to talk about in those terms. There are plenty of people who grew up here and moved away as soon as they could. There are plenty of people who stayed here and who operate very differently than we do. Mm-hmm. To be frank, I, I wish there were more companies in this area who we felt had similar approaches to business. So yeah, I I think the Pittsburgh connection, I wouldn't rank it near the top of the reasons why we do what we do, um, but we do like Pittsburgh.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I would say, I mean, we've, we've never shied away from the fact that we are from Pittsburgh and in Pittsburgh. We've always made it part of our company's identity. It's not something we've ever really tried to hide and it's not something we're really all that open to changing.
1: So what are the companies that you admire when you look at the way you communicate with your community? Or is it all sort of self-motivated and self-created?
2: No, no, no. I mean, the way we talk about ourselves online definitely started before Cotton Bureau was a thing. You know, coming out of an agency situation where we had salespeople who were maybe trying to pitch a product that you didn't even necessarily build or get the highest price for a thing and all sorts of different agency characteristics that we wanted to avoid when we came out. We wanted to make it clear that we were proud of our regional identity and that we had a specific mindset for the business. So some of those things came from the other people in that industry who you know we admired for the way that they talked about things. We never wanted to limit ourselves, whether it was you know, to specifically Pittsburgh clients or just doing client work, um, so we always thought about products. And ConBio happens to be by several orders of magnitude the most successful product that's come out of that attitude. But we had plenty of other products that didn't quite make it. You know, that idea, you know, goes back to at least goes back to Thirty Seven Signals, who, you know, are now Basecamp. There are other companies in other places that have this sort of independent, non VC backed, you know, sort of bootstrapped mentality.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say Kudal Partners was one with, you know, Jim Kudal and Field Notes that had a similar story. started off in client services, did their own thing, and now products is all they do. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Threadless, too. They're a group that we look to for a lot of inspiration, I mean, in a lot of different ways. And Independence is is certainly one of them. All these companies are from Chicago.
1: I don't know what that's all about, but. It's the Midwest. It's the Midwest. There it is. (laughs) We are a cliche. I guess there is something in the water here. I don't know. Maybe there is, because, you know, Lumi, my co-founder, is from Detroit. So uh, maybe there's something. Yeah, we're in the process of moving our office by
0: the end of March. We've been in one of the more established, nicer parts of Pittsburgh for at least as long as we've had an office, which is, I guess, since 2011. Um, But we're in the process of moving to another neighborhood on the other side of the city.
1: What's the impetus for that? Well, when we first moved
0: into our office uh, in 2011, we were a three-man web shop, that had a relatively small t shirt side project that sold between, I would say, 250 and 600 t shirts a month. So, and it was, we did that once a month so that t shirts would come back one time a month. We would stop making websites for a couple hours, pack up all the shirts, send them out, and then we wouldn't worry about it for another month. And we sit here almost six years later. We don't make any websites anymore other than Cotton Bureau, I guess. And we ship out, at minimum, I would say 4,500 or 5,000 T-shirts a month. And upwards of, I mean, in November last year, December, we, we shipped 15,000 T's. So or an 800 square foot, a second floor walk-up office that doesn't have any separate rooms inside of it isn't exactly ideal anymore. So we are moving across town to what will end up being probably something in the neighborhood of like 4,500 square feet, which is, you know, I guess five and a half times bigger than our office is right now. Totally custom build out. Um, industrial space that used to be like an auto garage for the last hundred years or however long it's been around. I wouldn't say we're at the beginning of that
1: process, but we're at the beginning of the build out, I guess, at this point. Are you saying that December of last year you were packing up all those orders from your little office?
0: No, uh, we we made a, a smart decision for once and uh, made a deal with our print shop, which is about a mile away from where our new office is going to be. They took over some extra space in their warehouse and allowed
1: us to move in, basically. What are you going to do with all the new space? So that's going to become the new fulfillment zone, right? Yeah. I mean, right now we've been fulfilling. We've been doing everything out of our little 800
0: square foot room uh, the whole time up until about early December last year. But now it's like we'll have dedicated warehouse space. We'll have offices for the first time. We're building out a full kitchen, you know, with stove, dishwasher, you know, garbage disposal, fridge, the whole thing, you know, dedicated lounge area, wow. conference room, quiet room, you know, closets. It'll it'll be, it'll be pretty sweet. <laughs> Living the life. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's still an affordable city and it's by our standards is getting less affordable, but you know, you can come to Pittsburgh and buy a pretty nice house for $200,000 within the city limits, which, you know, if you live obviously in a place like Brooklyn or the Valley or whatever is totally or even a place like Portland is like not even
1: conceivable. For us at Lumi, our our whole team on the engineering side is all remote. They live in random places around the US. And I think that that is awesome because you get to have a salary that is maybe not Silicon Valley level, but very good and live in a place where the cost of living is probably maybe half, if not (laughs) less than that. So it's a good time to be in one of those cities, I think,
0: yeah. if you want to live in San Francisco, you know it costs what like three, four thousand dollars a month for rent, something like that to live in like a decent place in a decent neighborhood and in Pittsburgh, I mean, if you want to buy a house, like three four thousand dollars a month mortgage will get you like a half a million dollar six hundred thousand dollar house, which is like the nicest house in the city, whereas six hundred thousand dollars in San Francisco or in Brooklyn
1: doesn't even get you in the conversation. One thing that I was curious about, you mentioned before we started to record that uh, you have something in the works these days around t-shirts. I'm curious if you want to share a little bit about what's going on and and if that relates at all to uh, what's going on with your office space. Like, What are some of the big projects these days at, at Cotton Bureau? I guess by the time this episode drops, we will have
0: uh, lifted the lid on on this little project that we've had going for some time now. We are starting to make our own t-shirts, as in like from fabric, cut and sew our specifications, our colors, our sizes, the whole bit. Making what they call blanks in the industry. Correct. Correct. That's the leader in the clubhouse for the name of the brand, by the way. It's Cotton Bureau Blank. Nice. But yeah, we're we're making our own t-shirts. We have our reasons. It's a pretty big project. It may, on an individual level, I mean, aside from building a company from scratch, I guess it might be the, the biggest thing we've ever tried to undertake. It's very complicated, and we're relatively scared, I would
1: say. I'm probably more scared than Nate is, but... Uh, Well, so let's start with with why. Well, like, why did you decide this was a good idea? It seems like there's so many companies that are involved in making blanks. I guess one of the big ones is disappearing now. American Apparel is probably the biggest one that people probably know of. Mm -hmm. Their factory was just down the street from us. My co-founder Jesse came out of that world. You know, there are many companies doing that kind of stuff. Like, what made you decide that you guys needed to put your stamp on that? I'll talk about the biggest reason and
0: Nate can probably address a lot of the sort of supply chain reasons, but so we've been making t-shirts now in some form or another since the middle of 2010. And the biggest hole that we have noticed in the market is that when it comes to wholesale fashion forward t-shirts, there is no solution for women's sizing. To be totally frank, I mean, women's sizing is insane for most wholesale garment manufacturers, uh, at least in the in the sort of fashion world. And we're, you know, we're talking about American Apparel, we're talking about Next Level, we're talking about Bella and Canvas in terms of wholesale brands. There is really nothing out there that comes in the fabrics we want, that comes in the colors we want, that's manufactured in a way that we feel comfortable with, that fits the average woman. They're all essentially a junior fit, you know, which means that, in civilian language, like a women's double X. Is smaller than a men's small in most cases. That's nuts, if you ask us. And it's something that we get constant pushback on from our customers uh, and absolutely deservedly so. We've looked around for a really long time, years, to try to find a solution for that. And it just doesn't exist. I mean, there's, there's more realistic sizing in brands that are not particularly fashion forward, but those shirts are crappy fabric that we don't like. They're made in countries in, in maybe in ways that we don't agree with. Uh, and they usually come in like 12 different pinks and they don't come in the colors we want. You know, if we use the fabrics and the colors and for the brands that we want, then the sizing is wrong. So we're trying to figure out how to combine both of those things, you know, sizing that we feel fits the range of women, colors that we want, fabrics that we want, and we're trying to make it all in the U S
1: and we've, chatted about this here and there, but I I really don't know any of the details and maybe all of this will become evident when you launch. But is the idea here that you would sell these wholesale or are you using them for your own products only? Are you offering them to regular customers as well as just like blank t-shirts? What's the idea? Or is it all of the above?
2: It's all of the above. Like Jay was talking about, we've needed this for our own internal purposes for years. In the past couple of years, we've had no intention of taking any outside money. You know, we were happy with being independent and doing our own thing calling the shots and not being beholden to any external stakeholders uh, but we did take some money late last year specifically for this project that was the primary reason that we took any funding Is it so we could solve this problem a for our needs like you mentioned b you know if people would like a blank cotton bureau shirt that fits well and is comfortable and comes in a color that you like then we now have that you know to offer as well and we're gonna. You know our margins are going to be healthier on a shirt that doesn't require so many people to participate in the production process. And then third, I, I think we will consider if we can get our logistics, ironed out and we are very confident in the process, offering this as a product that solves other people's needs as well because it is a product that people need. You know, we've mentioned American Apparel is undergoing a change of ownership and it has had some issues, you know, in the past. And it's a problem that, you know, needs to be solved for people. So if we can be the ones to solve it, we would love to. It's not plan A, it's not even plan B, but we'll we'll at least consider it if we get to a point where we're very happy with the production process.
0: Yeah. I mean I don't think we're under any delusions that we're gonna be American Apparel overnight,
1: but We'll see where it goes. Well, the interesting thing about T-shirts is it's almost like a commodity. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but even in in the case of Cotton Bureau, for so many of the people who are running these campaigns uh, on your site, the T-shirt is just a means of conveying information in a certain way like they're sharing a project that they're excited about or a thing uh you know like a podcast that they're a part of uh and this is why they're crowdsourcing for lack of a better word this design and the t-shirt happens to be a great vehicle for that and that might sound obvious but i think that there's so many more uses to this blank than just uh for fashion or for something that you need to wear if that makes sense that's probably something you guys think a lot about
0: yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'll push back a little bit on the commodity stuff. I think that if if it was just about getting the information out there, there are plenty of other places you can go that are cheaper, faster. They commoditize themselves more than we do. I think you come to Cotton Bureau because you care about the quality of what we do. Because honestly, without the design focus, without the quality, without the service, there's kind of no reason to come to us um, because right. we're we're not the cheapest. We're not the fastest. You know, we we think we're the best along the things that we care about. You know, th- there are a number of other apparel based projects that have come out in the last let's say five years that build up a story around them and you know it's you know there there are other apparel brands underwear hoodies things like that things that are that are traditionally commodities that they tell a story about and you know maybe they charge a premium for maybe they, you know you, you understand where the materials come from you understand where it's made how it's made maybe some of the costs that go into it and I think we can fit into that framework in a way that people respond to instead of just we're another company trying to make another t-shirt that will be another commodity t-shirt.
1: Yeah. I didn't mean to say commodity in that it's cheap, but it's, it's something that everybody uses. Right. You know, it's a, it's a thing that (laughs) it's like water, you know, it's like, uh, everybody is wearing this on their body. Not everyone, but a lot of t-shirts get worn every day. Let's just say that. That, and that's, that's really what I meant.
2: I, this is probably going in a direction that is going to be hard to recover from. But um, <laughs>
1: Thank you, Nate. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's Nate. I mean, even, the thing about commodities even is that they're not as quite, you know, as commoditized as you think that they are. Like, they're, they're different grades of, you know, oil or gold sure. or diamonds or whatever. There are different reasons why you might prefer um, ones that are mined or refined in, in different places as opposed to, you know, other places. So when, you know, when we think about, t-shirts it's not a winner-take-all you know sort of market neither on the customer side nor even the wholesale side you know people might prefer our shirts because they're comfortable because they're confident in the company that stands behind them because they like the price because they like the color you know that they can't find necessarily in a different one the same thing is equally true if not more so for sellers you know they are upset that their you know favorite t-shirt brand is going away or they've been looking for someone who produces ethically made shirts and they haven't been able to find them you know or they're just looking for something that's more locally sourced than what they already have so I think there are a lot of reasons that people, you know, have for choosing the, the product, even if it is one that seems like a commodity from a certain distance.
0: Yeah. And if I can sort of pat us all on the back, I guess, from a business standpoint, both of our companies sell things that you just need forever, essentially. You know, with with what Lumi does, you guys sell products that people need over and over and over again. And with T-shirts, it's like even if you have a thousand T-shirts, you're always going to buy that one thousand and first T-shirt. You know we're not selling blenders here where like you buy a blender and then like fifteen years later you buy another blender. I don't know whether that was an overt decision when we started this company, but I think it's it's definitely something that we're
1: we're happy we're in this business rather than another one so maybe you can share a little bit about what went into the design process of these of these blanks of these t shirts I mean it seems like a a pretty big undertaking if especially with the way you're describing it from. The, the fabrics that are selected to where they're being produced. And then, of course, fit is such a huge thing. I'm sure that was completely new to you, right? It is. And we're still going through it. You know, we're probably relatively early in that process. You know,
0: we have some patterns produced currently. They're not going to be the final patterns of what we, what we end up producing. And honestly, you know, maybe even what we end up producing won't be the final product of what we ultimately end up making. We have to start somewhere. We're pretty happy with how our our men's tees fit, so I think with a couple of tweaks, we're going to be able to find a final product that we're we're pretty happy with. With the women's stuff, I think we're going to engage our community a lot more in the process. That's something we've done in the past. So it wasn't last year. I think it was 2015. We switched away from American Apparel as our main apparel supplier. We saw that eventually the end was coming for them as a company, and you know, kind of it seems like here we are a couple of years later. But also, it's like, look, we we've never been happy with their their marketing as a brand. It's not something that we were ever really all that comfortable tying ourselves to. We liked that they were made in the U S we liked the quality, we liked the fit, but the advertising was just pretty unpalatable. So we decided for that reason, but also, you know, we kind of saw that the company was going downhill, jump, jump off that ship a couple of years ago. We had a couple of contenders for who we were going to switch to next level ended up winning for us. But before we did that, we kind of crowdsourced, um, there's that word again, um, we sort of crowdsourced some user data, I guess. So we made a blank T-shirt with a, with a test pattern on it that we sold at cost and tried to sell as many of them as we could, basically to get next level tees across a variety of fabrics and sizes into our customers' hands, just to ask them, basically, what do you think of this? How does it hold up? How does it wash? You know, How does the print look after a couple of washes? How does it fit after a couple of washes? You know, is it coming apart? What do you think? And we sort of engaged our community in that, at the time, pretty big decision, and i think we're going to do the same thing this time so we're going to tell the story obviously of of how this happens from from pretty close to the beginning but also i think we're going to we're going to probably sign a handful of people up to be testers you know so if you're women small or women's large or or whatever um you know we're going to have a handful of people engaged in the process to to send them samples as we get them produced and as the as the patterns change uh, to see if we can can land on something that we're all reasonably happy with. There's no silver bullet here in t-shirts. We're not going to make something that fits everybody. But I think if we can make something that fits a much, much, much wider range of women than the shirts that we currently use, I think it's going to be a great product.
1: Yeah, it's something that most people never really think of. But when you get a a t-shirt that fits well, it makes a huge difference. And why not? (laughs) Yes. The
0: shirt that fits me the best is like a Mossimo six ninety nine t-shirt from Target. I don't know where it's made. You know, it's not something that's available <laughs> wholesale for us, but it just, it fits me. And it's like, it's, you know, it's one of my favorite t-shirts, you know. Even there's like variants within t-shirts from the same brand. I mean, one of my favorite American apparel tees is a t-shirt that my wife bought me in for Christmas in like 2008. And it just like, there's something about it. The hem is a little bit shorter than most American apparel tees. And it's got like pit stains and holes from where my belts poke through. And it's, it's, that's my favorite t-shirt, you know? It's like, you can't really predict this stuff. If we can land on something with the fit, knowing that we we're already confident in the, in the fabric and and things like that, but, and we know, you know, we're going to try to make it in the U S and that's going to be part of the story, which is, you know, aside from really at this point, Royal apparel, there aren't any big wholesale brands making stuff in the U S but if we can land the fit, especially for
1: women, it's a huge idea. And we're super excited about it. It it sounds kind of, obvious, I guess, but why is it important for you that it's made in the U S you know, for whatever reason,
0: Americans love stuff. That's American, you know, and we do too. I have jeans that are made in America. I have boots that are made in America, I have jackets that are made in America, but you know, there's also a lot of logistical positives that you get out of making stuff in America. Um, we're talking to a factory in the other side of Pennsylvania right now. And if I can get my car and in five hours be at the factory, that's a lot better than even if it's in Los Angeles, much less Vietnam or, Nicaragua or Honduras. We want to have a relationship with whoever's making our stuff. We have a great, great, great relationship, long-standing relationship, with the company that prints all of our t-shirts, and we want to extend that sort of feeling to the people who are making our t-shirts, the people who are supplying our fabrics, the people who are dyeing our stuff, cutting and you know cutting our stuff. That's a lot easier to do when it's here. You know, in addition to just, you know, people want to support things that are made in America. Yeah. And I hate to sound like, you know, Trump when I say that, but,
2: you know. (laughs) Let me jump in on the American made thing, too. And I think it really is for us, especially for me, more about the second part that Jay was talking about. I mean, there's a pretty pat business strategy where you try to make everyone who isn't you as cheap and competitive with each other as possible. You want to make everyone who makes your stuff compete with each other for the lowest you know price and the best service and, and all these things. This is Windows strategy for computers and it's you know it's it's normal business as usual for most people. And we've taken very much the opposite approach. We don't necessarily integrate every single thing that we do. we're not, we're not making we're not printing the shirts ourselves. We're not hand delivering them to people. Um, but anywhere that it's possible, like it has been with our printer, we do want that relationship to be an equal partnership rather than um, one where we have six dozen different printers and we don't know exactly where your shirt came from and we can't really take responsibility for it and we're constantly exerting pressure on them to improve their prices and to improve their service and things like that because we think that's an unhealthy and unsustainable sort of environment. So the more of the sort of stack that we can have very strong professional close partnerships with, the better that we think the product is going to be for you know for the people who are receiving it and for us as a company to you know stand behind.
1: Yeah, one of the things that gets thrown around when um, you talk about manufacturing in the U.S. versus Asia, and I think this is something that Tim Cook from Apple, like a company that we all kind of follow pretty closely, I'm assuming, talks about is like the the depth of expertise like, has disappeared from America or the equipment doesn't exist in America anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the raw materials, the cotton in this case, is not available at competitive prices or something like that. Were any of those issues things that you ran up against in designing the the t-shirts? I mean, the blanks themselves? At least with apparel manufacturing, a lot of that expertise is still here. There are still towns
0: around the U.S., towns that, I mean, honestly, you know, the, one of the, the, the factory that we're currently talking to that I didn't even know about, I guess there's a pretty rich tradition of apparel making in that town. And it's not totally lost. Um, So I think, I think a lot of that is still here. Cotton is still grown here. Fabric is still made here. Fabric is still dyed here. Fabric is still cut and sewn here. You know, we're not making iPhones. uh, And I think if we were, we'd be having a different conversation about where we were going to make them. Although to go back to a earlier part of our conversation, I guess Foxconn is talking about partnering with Apple to open uh, either like a display or a molding facility in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Some like big, like $7 million project, billion with a B dollar project. A lot of apparel making expertise is still in the States. So I think that's why you see people, you know, like American Giant or Teleson or, you know, American Apparel still making stuff here.
2: I think you also have to be extremely careful when you're sort of drawing a line between different companies. I know we don't want to talk about the election, but it doesn't really matter about the 50% of people who didn't come out, which side they supported, yeah. because even a small percentage of those people could have swung the election if they had come out. So even if it was 80-20 the other direction, it really matters, you know, just that marginal uh, aspect of it. So when when we're talking about Apple, I mean, they may not have a choice. They might need to work with the largest, most scalable, you know, company in the world to to meet their demand. You know, Twitter might need to have the best possible scaling architecture to meet all the simultaneous, you know, demand for uh, our Twitter clients. We don't have that problem. We barely need any capacity at all, you know. And I've always had a pet peeve about when people blame somebody else for for things that they could have foreseen. Oh, my app that I put in the App Store, um, people don't want to pay for apps. Well, that may be true, but that isn't why your app failed. Your app failed for other reasons because you didn't make a compelling case for people to buy your app you know so we have to make a compelling case for people to buy our shirts even though they might be more expensive than what you could get at target and i think we can find partners in the u.s who have the experience who have the you know the price point to do what we need to do and we can tell a story about it and we can work with them to be more efficient in how we do things and our prices don't necessarily need to match amazon's prices or target's prices they just need to line up with the rest of what we're doing is this a shirt that you can get anywhere else it's it's not the only place you can get it is on cotton bureau is you know are you going to be able to work with people who are in your city or in your state or in your country if you go to those places you might not be able to so it's really up to us to to tell that story and to find those partners and you know just as one caveat we you know we haven't gone through this entire process yet so if at the end of it we find that we were mistaken and that it is impossible to do in the u.s then we'll have to admit that before we go any further. But as of right now, we think there's a real chance that we can do this.
1: Yeah. One thing that we talked about uh, after the election as a team at Lumi is that the two biggest relationships that we sort of manage as a company is one with our customers who are companies like yours and many other e-commerce companies, most of which are based out of San Francisco, New York, or Los Angeles, and our network of factories that are staffed by blue-collar workers all across the United States, mostly in towns that are not the big urban hubs. And so we're kind of right at the (laughs) middle between these Mm -hmm. two things that need to talk to each other to make things happen. That put a a kind of responsibility that I really enjoyed on us to kind of facilitate that, that exchange in a way that hopefully makes everybody realize that we all sort of need each other
2: <laughs> I think Jay already made this point, but just because things are a certain way right now doesn't guarantee that they'll be that way five years from now, just like with startups or with restaurants or with anything else you know the location of things changes all the time you know the economic pressures and incentives change all the time there's no reason fundamentally why you know textiles couldn't be a thing that we do in this country. It's just a matter of whether we choose to, you know, to focus on that or not.
1: The, the thing that I get frustrated with a little bit is maybe this idea, and it, it might be apocryphal, it might be just one of those things that sounds good, but that Americans maybe don't want manufacturing jobs anymore. And I'm not sure if that's true or not, because the factories that we work with seem plenty happy to be doing the work that they're doing. Um, but there's a certain cultural aspect that I learned this word from the Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the documentary, but the shokunin, you know, have you heard that word before? It's like a Japanese term for a craftsman. I mean, I've seen seen Jiro, but I can't remember that. Yeah, it's it's basically a Japanese word for like one path in life is to become a shokunin, which is Mm -hmm. a, a person who is a master in their craft, whatever that might be. And you don't need to necessarily have like a high iq to become this person you just need to dedicate yourself to this craft and like apprentice with a master and learn it's the old apprentice journeyman master model that has existed you know for thousands of years but has sort of been somewhat forgotten i think in the u.s or at least a a certain group of people don't value that uh path in life but I think it's a really valuable path and it's one that I think I think hopefully i'm I'm guessing eventually we'll remember that it exists and that it really makes economies work in a yeah I mean I, it's easy to
0: say you know Americans don't want this Americans don't want that but there really is no such thing as Americans I mean there's there's yeah. only there infinite shades of Americans and you know do I want a manufacturing job no you know do any of the three of us want a manufacturing job probably not but Nate's dad, my dad, you know, people who have worked in those settings for their entire careers. I think we, in a way, sort of like spiritually think of ourselves as, you know, the sort of like cliched coastal elites that everybody talks about. But at the same time, it's like, look, we are in the middle of the Rust Belt. Pittsburgh is, in a way, the capital of the Rust Belt. This kind of place is what turned the election. So I think we we understand, based on where we are, the sort of culture of manufacturing in the U.S., you know, and to go back to our discussion about Pittsburgh, that sort of cliched, you know, hardworking factory worker conversation. I mean, that's that's in the that's in the DNA around here, um, to some extent. And I, I don't know how portable those skills are between industries. I don't know that if you grew up working in one industry, you can open another industry and, you know, sort of swap everybody from one to another, but it seems like something that's worth a try. We weren't gonna talk about the goddamn election, man.
1: <laughs> well, okay. Let's cut that part. We'll just uh, you leave it in. We'll leave it, we'll in. Leave it right. in, but yeah. we'll move on to one last thing that I do <laughs> want to talk about. Before you alluded to this, but I do think it bears going into a little bit. You did raise some funding. I remember, you know, conversations going back at least a year and a half, two years about you guys thinking about it very carefully, and that's always been kind of our motto at Limi as well. And I'm curious if you would share a little bit of your thinking behind that and how you ended up making that decision.
2: Well, it's funny you should mention that we just had a, a call with our investor earlier this evening, Bryce, it was horrible and <laughs> <laughs> it's been a nightmare honestly since we took this money. All of our worst fears have been realized.
1: Without joking, what were your <laughs> fears? What what were the, the biggest fears you had?
2: You know, I have concerns, I have reservations, you know, there are risks. With people who are maybe have more access to capital, you know, if you're coming out of Brooklyn or Austin or San Francisco or other places, I think it's a little bit more normal to consider going down that path. We have some friends in those places and we have some friends in places that are raising money is more atypical, you know, and you have to really go outside the box to become a part of those, you know, processes. And, you know, in talking to them, there are very real concerns about, And I mean, like you said, we talked to you, you've raised some money. Talking to them, they're very real concerns about what happens if things start to go sideways. You know, do you give the money back? Do you, you know, pivot to a different thing? How much pressure are you experiencing on a, you know, quarterly, monthly, daily basis? So we were wary of these things uh, and never really wanted to test those waters, even though we had conversations with investors from time to time just to try to see if we were a good match. and. Thankfully, they told us we weren't a good match for them. But when we found out about Indivc two years ago, they really seemed like an entirely different operation. It was really just here's an influx of cash to do the thing that you talked about doing without changing your company culture in any way. And oh, by the way, you know we're here to help if there's anything that we can do. That's really how it works, and it really has enabled us to start down this path of making our own shirts to improve the company and other tiny and large ways that will become pretty obvious over the next year or two. And we think, and they think, that there's money to be made doing that. There will be a return on that investment. There are no particular shackles or strings that are attached to it. It's more I wouldn't say it's a, a gentleman's agreement or, you know, a you know handshake agreement, but we think that's the way that a lot of companies would be better off if they went down a slightly less intense, slightly more holistic Slightly less, uh, make a dent in the universe path.
1: Aside from the like the obvious benefit of having a little more cash in the bank, now now that you're a few months into it, have you been pleasantly surprised by anything uh, about that relationship with D
2: I don't know about either pleasantly or unpleasantly. I think. We overthink a lot of things, definitely try to imagine all the different ways that it could go. Speaking for myself, and Jay might have his own thoughts on it, but I really like talking to people who are either experts in what they do or have a good, broad understanding of how things work. And then we can sort of take that outside opinion and use it to validate or invalidate some of the things that we've been talking about. So we may be split over a decision or we may both feel pretty strongly, but it's always useful to get that outside perspective and see if what we're talking about is crazy or if it could be done differently and better. So I think that for me, just aside from the fact that we can get access to an entirely new you know, group of people who are interested in helping us, just that ability to get a sanity check on some things has been really useful to me.
1: Jay, do you want to comment on that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would only say that in terms of being pleasantly surprised, I'm a pretty cynical guy and I'm always expecting the other shoe to drop. And we're, you know, six months into this relationship and it really seems, you know, as Nate said, that it's, you know, we thought it was too good to be true, but that's what that's what this is, is, um, you know, our, our investor has not put any pressure on us to really do one thing or another. And he's made it very clear, um, in some cases explicitly clear, that he doesn't want to exert any of that pressure, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Again, asking us explicitly, like, are you feeling any of this pressure from me? I mean, we've been in business now for, since summer of '09. And we've always, I think, scaled our business slowly and deliberately as our income, as our revenue, I should say, has gotten bigger. You know, we we didn't really hire anybody for a long time uh, until we we knew we could afford it, or at least until we knew we had the need. And taking money, I don't want to say it forces you. Or at least in the case of this money, taking this money didn't necessarily force us to make bigger bets. But I think we wanted to make those bigger bets. And I was always a little worried about blowing up the company just by trying to do too much with money that isn't true revenue, you know? Now, I mean, that's a, that's a worry that every startup has, so that's not necessarily something unique to, to NDVC, but it's certainly unique to the culture of our business where we'd been used to kind of living by the seat of our pants, not that that's a comfortable way to live. And, you know, I'll say it for him, you know, Nate's the sole income. He's got four kids and a wife, and it's it's a lot more stressful for him financially than it is for me or for Matt, the other partner in our business. You know, so I think Nate felt that pain more than the other people in the business did. And now that we are more comfortable financially as a business, I think he's certainly more comfortable as an individual, but the, the the pressure to take this money and actually do something with it to scale the revenue is something that I was a little scared of going into it.
1: Yeah. One thing that's a bit of a blessing and a curse is that you guys have a business that in a certain way you can see a path to where it's growing organically, as opposed to say like you know if you're trying to build like SpaceX you need the money to make the rocket to go to space right yes, you can't yep. you can't just like bootstrap your way to a rocket that goes to space i mean maybe you can <laughs> but it would take a really long time uh-huh. uh, I, I would assume or you would have to sell a lot of different products before you got to the point where you could make the rocket whereas you know in the business uh, that you're in or the business that we're in you can see a path where you could do this gradually and so in a way i think there's also a danger to that. There's a danger, which is that you don't think ambitiously enough because, you know, you, you want to live within your own means, which is a perfectly logical and reasonable approach, but it can cut both ways, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, Nate and I as individuals are are very different in a lot of ways. Nate is a risk taker and I am scaredy cat when it comes to big decisions like this. And it's been that way since the very, very beginning of our company. You know, so Nate always wants to bet on the company. He always wants to make the big bet. And I'm the one who's always like, let's slow down a little bit. Um, You know, we end up somewhere in the middle, you know, making some of the bets, not making some of the bets with more money to play with those bets get bigger. You move from the, you know, the $1, $2 blackjack table to the $50, $100 blackjack table. You know, that comes with an increase in stress. I mean, we hired a few people We're obviously, you know, we talked about the office. We talked about the T-shirt project. We did a couple other things as a company that, you know, that were overdue. We finally gave everybody health insurance. And then it's a pretty good plan. Doing those sorts of things, even even just like new chairs. We didn't buy new chairs. But like, you know,
1: like. It's an investment that you're making into right, the company. Right. You know, and, and you're you're expecting to get a return on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All those things add up. And.
0: It's just things that we we wouldn't have done before because we didn't have the means to do them before. And some of those are direct investments that we expect to pay back. And some of them are just we have the money. Let's make the lifestyle
2: a little bit better around here. And hopefully it pays back in, in other ways. Yeah. And this is sort of one of my favorite topics, I think, and and definitely a conversation that we've been having for as long as our business has been a thing. I guess before our business was a thing. It's it's so tempting and everyone does it all the time. You know, should designers learn to code? It's like there's not a binary answer to these questions, you know. Like, yes, of course, maybe. I don't know, maybe not. Should SpaceX take money? Sure. Should Cotton Bureau? I don't know. Maybe. Should like the pizza shop next door? Probably not. You know, it really comes down to understanding the trade-offs involved and the pros and cons and your, you know, individual preferences and things. I don't know how much of a, a risk taker I am. I think To the degree that I am a risk taker, it's because I think there's always a fallback plan that could be put into place, whether it's t shirts don't work out or cotton beer doesn't work out or whatever the situation is. But I think it maybe would make sense to go back to sort of the like the Pittsburgh companies being a certain way, people in the region being a certain way. There was an expectation when, you know, when my grandfather worked in the steel mill that that was his job. And when he finished that job, that they would take care of him and that expectation in our industry in our time has been completely eroded or annihilated and it's much more common for you to say i'll work at five or six different jobs and maybe a 401k will follow me around or maybe i'll get rich because i worked for the right company at the right time i think jay and i both have a real concern for the flippancy that it requires for investors to invest in 10 companies and only expect one to make it out for investees to take that money And just trust in a couple rolls of the dice to see if they're the ones who make it. You know, when you see a company like Medium dismiss a third of its workforce just because a decision that they made as you know stakeholders didn't really go the direction that they wanted to go, you know, it's frustrating for us, and I think it's much worse than frustrating for the people who now need to relocate or find a new job or explain to their, you know, kids or their spouse why things have to change. You know, so if there is a degree of caution in what we do, it's out of a respect for, you know, people's lives and not upending them. Not it's not a fear of failure as much as a, we think like a healthy amount of caution and prudence in and how we approach, you know, running a business.
1: Yeah, and I think to go back to what you said at the beginning, every business is different. When Jesse and I decided to raise money, what we did actually is a few months prior, we got in touch with a dozen or so of people in our extended network of friends who were running very successful companies or had run very successful companies. There was uh, some people in LA, some people in SF, some people in New York, and we went and visited them and had some deep conversations with them about how they felt it went. And we intentionally picked people who took very different approaches to running a business and how they decided to raise money. And it was great. They all gave us different answers. Some people said, never raise VC money. Some people said, do it. Get as much money as you can while (laughs) while the money's good. Some people said, do it carefully. Some people said, you know, you should just do Kickstarter. Every answer was completely different. And it was exactly what I was hoping for. Because there's not a right answer. And I think where I get worried is when I see people sort of gets swept up in the the sort of like media and the, I don't know how to describe it, the image of startups, I think, is what, what gets a little scary. And I think people can kind of get a little too tied up in what it looks like to run a startup. We're a strangely like over-connected
0: industry. What do you mean by that? When you think about, you know, going back to Nate's pizza shop. You just sort of casually threw that out there, but it's like pizza shops aren't connected to other pizza shops. You know, maybe they are locally, but you know, you're not paying attention to what another pizza shop is doing in New York or what another one's doing in Portland, unless you're at the very top of the game. Whereas in our industry, it seems like all designers are at least mildly connected. All other designers, all startups are kind of aware of what's happening. It's, you know, we have, we have industry news, we have Twitter, you know, as, as I've said in the past, it's like, we're the industry that makes things like Twitter. So we all kind of have this low level or high level awareness of what's happening everywhere else at all times. And that creates, I think, you know, this kind of like unified picture of what it looks like to do what we do, what it looks like to be a designer, what, what what the fashion of design looks like, what the fashion of startups looks like. Like you said, everybody has this image in their head of what it looks like to run a startup, what it looks like to run a business. And people get caught up in the, and I'm using this term very deliberately, the hustle of startupdom. And that never, and I mean like never appealed to us. We're stubborn guys. You know, we we think for ourselves and we've always thought about like, what does our business look like? And, you know, is the culture of, of the startup world for us at all? Is there any piece of that that we can carve out and like put into Cotton Bureau that would work? And honestly, the answer was no for a long time until NDVC popped up. And NDVC is still the only program of its kind out there. Um, I don't see anything else popping up that's like it, but I think there's a hunger out there for companies that don't look like the traditional startup,
1: but there's, there's not much out there for them. When we went on this tour, the question that we did ask everyone was like, if you were going to raise money, who are some people who are not assholes basically? (laughs) There were very few names that came out. There were like five names that came up and I, I feel a very, like very much a kindred spirit to you guys because you know, we ran a bootstrapped company for five years. You know, we we raised money through Kickstarter and had a couple loans. But aside from that, it was, you know, it was not like, it was not VC. It was not really invested into. And so, and Jesse, my co-founder, had started the idea of Lumi now almost like 10 or 12 years ago. So it's like not something that we wanted to throw away that easily. You know, we we wanted to approach that decision really, really carefully. And, and I think that that's something that's, I don't know, underrated for some reason. Uh, Yeah, I think um, a lot of startups
0: take the money to prove the concept. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I think it was important for us to
1: prove the concept, then take the money. And and it was funny when you guys made that announcement, uh, one of the things, I feel like it was at XOXO I told you, like, you shouldn't apologize so much. Like, you guys were, (laughs) like, your whole post was, like, basically apologizing for taking money almost, like, saying, like, hey, nothing's going to change, it's going to be all right, stay cool. I don't think that, um, I, I get where that came from, but I think that sometimes, you know, our humility, like, gets in the way of a very positive thing for the most part. It seemed like the community responded to it very well.
2: Yeah. I mean we derisively refer a lot to companies who raise money as having not really accomplished anything aside from convincing oh, yeah. some investors that they're, you know, worth something. Yeah. And and we definitely didn't take that approach, you know, for ourselves. So it is, you know, sort of reflective of how we feel about that to have raised money. I've had a thought for a long time that I can't honestly say I'm sure makes sense here, but from the outside, and nobody has said this, and I haven't had any conversations with anyone who said this, but every time I read about a company that raised money, or maybe it's the second or third round of raising money, or a company that got acquired, or a person who left a successful thing to go and work for a larger company, or a person who you know gave up the company that they were running to allow someone else to run it who has more resources – there's always a, a surface level, you know, congratulations and what an accomplishment and it's got to feel great, you know, sort of thing. But to me, it looks like someone who barely limped, you know, across the finish line. I just see a, an exhaustion, you know, among these people. And I could be totally wrong. I could be totally misreading it. But it just seems like there's like a, a quitting, you know, almost like a, a giving mm-hmm. in to this is the only way you can run a company that doesn't require me to not sleep at all at night. To be constantly stressed to worry about like where the next client or product feature is coming from and we're not strangers to that and i don't think i would claim that we have thicker skins than anyone else it is very difficult to run a company with or without somebody else's money but something that i really appreciated about the fact that we did decide to work with evc is that it felt like we gave ourselves that cushion without sacrificing anything that was important to us We can still run a company the way we want to run a company and we can still put out the product that we want to put out without having to say, we're giving up on the things that mattered to us, you know, just to take somebody else's money or to get out of the game because we're too tired of having played it. And I could be, I could be totally misunderstanding people's motivations, but.
0: Well, I think, um, and again, you know, sort of patting all three of us on the back here. Um, and I guess all four of us, including Jesse, it's, it like. We sell shit to people in exchange for money. Like, that's right. what our business is. And that's what right. most businesses are. You sell a service, you sell a good, and like people give you money for that thing. And somewhere along the line, there became this like insane idea that like you could give stuff away for free and like still build a profitable business
1: somehow. It works very rarely, but it right. works. That's it, th- it can exactly. work. It's possible exactly. that it will work, but it's so rare that it's, it seems like a very big gamble to me. Right. You know, even if you reach the mountaintop, even if you're Twitter, right? Like it's
0: still not good enough somehow for their investors or for some set of people who are calling the shots in an important way. If you're someone who's starting out a business and you're going to make a software startup, you're going to be, you know, just a software tech company and it's going to be free. It's going to be service. Like I would look at Twitter and be like scared shitless, where it's just like if they got that big and it's still not good enough for somebody, like what chance do I have? I think what we do is pretty easy to understand. You know, it's like we sell T-shirts to people and they give us money and we ship them to them yeah people give you money, and you send them boxes with their logo on it like that's that 's pretty easy to understand it 's pretty easy to understand like how it
1: 's a business i 've talked about this before, but there 's a page on Wikipedia that I really love, which is the list of oldest companies in the world mm-hmm. and there are companies on there that are more than a thousand years old that are still in business. There are many, many companies that are multiple hundreds of years old, and all <laughs> if you want to make a business that 's going to last for a long time. Alcohol is, like, probably the number one. (laughs) Sake, beer... Basically, they're all businesses that sell something for a profit. There's no Twitter on there, but we'll see. Maybe they'll be around in a thousand years. Yeah, they might not even be around by the end of 2017. I always looked at that list and thought, this is amazing. For example, um, Kikoman Soy Sauce, like that's a company that's been around for something like 800 years. You can see that it says on their label, like since 1262 or something like that. And I always love seeing, you know, you walk down the street and you see a, a sign that says, like, since. 2011. <laughs> and I feel like you shouldn't put since dates unless you're at least you know, 30 years old or more, that's got to be the minimum bar. But then, you know, a couple years later, I started thinking, is that even a good goal anymore? Should a company try to be a thousand years old? Is that a, is that even a good goal at all? (laughs) I want it to at least hopefully last my lifetime, but we'll see. Yeah, I was going to say, I I like getting paychecks regularly. So I mean, it's, yeah.
0: Nate and I both had this conversation a long time ago with uh, Frank Camaro. We were in Austin for South by or something. And I was pitching him on some dumb idea we had at the time, and he said something like, you know, why does this thing have to live forever? Like, why can't it just be like a, a project that has an end an end date on it? I don't know. I guess that, that, that goes back to what you were mentioning about, you know, does a company have to live forever? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You want it to end how you want it to end. You don't always get to control how it ends. And I think, you know, that's a danger in taking somebody else's money is you don't always get to say what the end looks like. I mean, we we've shut down a handful of things completely on our own terms. And that was... I don't want to say it was a great feeling, but it was a lot better than if we'd taken somebody's money somewhere along the way and had them say, you know what, guys, it's over. It's time to shut it down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It always goes back to the same essential questions that we discuss internally and that we've literally given a talk on that you can you know, Google. It's just, I mean, you have to be introspective. You have to be self-critical. Why are you getting into this? Are you looking for a huge personal outcome? Are you hoping that people put you in the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine? You know, are you... You know, are you looking to take care of the people around you and your immediate family? Like, do you get pleasure out of like making a thing that is well-made? It's just, it's really going to come down to your personal, you know, motivations. And hopefully you can put together a a like-minded group of people. Otherwise you're just sort of using people for your own ends. But that's the, the only advice I ever am able to give anyone.
0: Mm -hmm. I think Nate and I, we started a web design shop because we knew how to make websites and we learned pretty quickly that we liked running a business more than we liked making websites. You know, we still didn't have like infinite skills to just go do anything we want to do. But, you know, we we took on this t-shirt thing and learned how to do that. And, you know, we got pretty good at doing that. We got pretty good at the mechanisms of how Cotton Bureau works. And, you know, now we're trying something else brand new. So, you know, we're not afraid to change. You guys are the same way. You know, it's I mean what InkoDye look like with the Kickstarter bears no resemblance to what you do as a business now. Plans aren't as they aren't worth the paper that you write them down. I mean, it's, it's helpful to have goals, but we've always felt that plans, especially detailed plans,
1: are worth a damn. Nate, do you want to put in a, a final thought for us to end on?
2: I mean, we've successfully scaled our company from two people in 2009 to eight people in Woo! 2017. So it's pretty clear that the sky's the limit if you Rocket follow our advice.
1: <laughs> So if people want to check out Cotton Bureau, they just go to CottonBureau.com. And do you want to plug anything else? Nate's in a movie? Are you writing a book or anything?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I'll have a book coming out in a couple weeks. Yeah, I got a new album coming out. It's going to drop, Todd. So. I, no, I think whenever this podcast is released, if you go to CottonBureau.com, you will find whatever we are working on. I, I feel confident in making that statement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for well-made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.